Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast from Mount Hope Christian Church's Belmont campus in Belmont, Massachusetts. If we don't know each other, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of the church there. Listen, I don't know about you, but I'll admit something to you. Don't tell anybody, but I am not perfect. There's no possible way I could live the life that God tells me I should live, and maybe you feel the same way too. In fact, I think a lot of people feel that way. They hear all the rules that are in the Bible. They hear all the things that people who follow Jesus say we should do, and they just shake their head and think it's not worth it. I think the problem is we're a bit confused about what our motivation should be to live the life that God calls us to. In this sermon, we talk a little bit about that problem we all face, the problem of imperfection, and the things that should motivate us to live lives that God asks us to live. So I hope you enjoy this. I hope you listen closely because I believe that God has something that he would like to say to you. Well, this week, uh, this week I was riding with my daughter and my son. I have a five-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son, almost three years old, and they were riding in the back seat, and we were driving uh, what is usually the car my wife drives, and so we were riding in mommy's car, as it's known in our family. And so I was driving uh, the car, and they were in the back seat, and, and Caitlin said to me, she said, Dad, why does our car have a five on it? And I said, what do you mean a five? She said, why does mommy's car have a five on it? And I kept thinking, I'm like, she's talking about the license plate? What's she talking about? And finally, she pointed to the windshield, and she pointed to the lower uh, right-hand corner in the passenger side of the windshield. She said, why does our car have a five on it? And I looked down, and there, of course, was the inspection sticker. And I said, oh, I said it has a five because every year in May, we have to get the car inspected, and, and then we get a new sticker. And then it hit me. It's seven right now, and I have a five on my car from last year. And so while we were driving, we very quickly uh, pulled into the nearest gas station that does those sorts of things. And uh, we got out, and I, you know, I said to the man, I'd like to pay my $35 a year tax for driving this car in Massachusetts. And he said, okay. And so he said, I'll take it right now. He said, there's a waiting room on this side. So the car went right into the garage, and we went into the waiting room. And we were sitting there, and there was really, there were no games, no magazines, just a couch in this room. And Caitlin turned to me and said, Dad, what do we do while we're waiting? And I said to her, that's the question. We've been asking every Sunday morning, Caitlin, what do we do while we're waiting? If you've been with us over the last few weeks, uh, you know as we've been in this book of Titus, we've been asking this question, what do we do with our lives while we're waiting? Meaning, if you're a follower of Jesus, and we've sung about this many times this morning, we think that there's going to be a time where we see him again face to face where either he returns to this earth while we're still alive, or when we uh, die and our time is over on this earth, that we will see him face to face. And so the question is, what do we do with our lives while we're waiting for that moment? How do we use the time well, and how do we use it wisely? And we've been walking through this book of Titus, which is a letter that a man named Paul wrote to a young mentee of his named Titus. And he's telling him, Titus, this is how you're to live while you're waiting. This is how the leaders in the church you oversee should live. And this is how the people in the church should live while you're waiting. And so Paul, if you've been with us or if you're familiar with, with this letter, in the verses just before the verses we're going to read this morning, in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul gives Titus this big list of all the things that people who follow Jesus should do and how they should live. They're to be self-controlled. 
They're to be submissive. And he goes on and on and gives all these different things for different people in different age groups, for different people in different stages of life, how they're to live their life. Here's what happens when we get a list like that in the Bible. A list like that in the Bible can be very deflating, can it? And I'll, and I'll explain to you why I, I would say that. You would say, well, the Bible can't be deflating, but sometimes when we get a list like this in the Bible of all the ways we should be living and all the things we should be doing, it can be deflating for a simple reason. Let me ask you this question. When's the last time you were in a situation where you just gave up on something because you realized you were outmatched right away? Maybe you were put into a, a work project that you didn't have the right training for, and they just threw you into the deep end, and you thought to yourself, There's a, I, I need a training session, or I need something before I can do this. And so rather than continue to try, you just kind of gave up on it. Or maybe it was uh, some other sort of skill-based thing that you were in. Maybe it was a sport that you were playing. Uh, maybe someone handed you an instrument, and you didn't know what to do with it. And so you didn't even try because you knew you didn't have the ability to complete the task ahead of you. In college, I was part of a group that traveled down to uh, a little tiny town in Honduras called El Triunfo, and uh, it was a village of about 10,000 people up in the mountains in the middle of nowhere, and we were helping to build a school for about 10 days. While we were doing this project, uh, we got word that some of the teenagers in the town wanted to play us in, in football, and so we said, all right, we'll play football. Is it Tackle, touch, flag, and they said, no, of course, it is not that football, uh, of which you are very familiar. It is the football that none of you ever play, uh, which is soccer. And so we said, all right, well, we'll try to play soccer. If the teenagers in the town would like to play us in soccer, none of us uh, Midwestern guys are too familiar with soccer, but uh, we'll give it a shot. So after we had done work for a day, uh, we just had our clothes on that we had worked in. We were a little dusty, a little tired, a little sweaty. We got into a van, and they drove us up to um, an area. And I remember when we came around the corner, we saw, you know, it's a small village, pretty dusty. Uh, you know, not, not, not a lot of uh, money goes into landscaping and things in that sort of situation, but when we turned this corner, there was the first field I had seen the entire time we were there that was perfectly flat, uh, perfectly green, and it was ready for not just a fun game of soccer, a real game of soccer. And we happened to notice that these teenagers uh, that just wanted to play a friendly game of soccer, uh, as we walked up, were in full uniform uh, with numbers and names and all had the same shirt on, all had the same shorts on, all had the same shoes on, and they were standing in a line. I won't forget it. They were standing in a line, and everyone had their own soccer ball, and none of the balls were touching the ground. Their head, their shoulders, their back, their feet, no ball was touching the ground. And here we were, uh, you know, maybe we had played, I had played YMCA soccer maybe in second grade uh, at the South-Southwest YMCA in Omaha, Nebraska, which is a premier program, uh, but maybe not this good. So uh, we walked up to the field, and we had to line up, and they lined up, and they sang their national anthem, and then we had to sing our national anthem, and there were referees with stripes, and, and, and everything was, it was, was not just a friendly game of soccer, as we thought. This was like going in the record books as an official game of soccer. This was Honduras versus the United States of America, and we did not realize uh, the situation before we pulled up to the field. Based on my experience over the next uh, hour and a half or so, 
I would, I would favor Honduras to win the World Cup every time it's held. These guys were so skilled. These, these young men were so skilled at the game of soccer. The only time we touched the ball was when they wanted us to touch it so they could steal it away and score. That was the only time we touched the ball. And it was one of those situations, I'll be honest with you, after a long day of working, it was very clear to us right away uh, that we didn't have it in us to match these guys when it came to soccer. And you've been in situations like that. You just realize, right, you're in way over your head. You don't have the skills and the abilities and the talents to match what's ahead of you. And our tendency in those moments is to give up. I can promise you that after about 10 minutes, I didn't run as hard in that game as I had the first 10 minutes. There was no real point to it. Uh, it was, we were never going to score. We were never going to win that game. And we've been in situations like that. Here's how the message of the Bible can come across to many people. You should be this kind of person. Here's all the rules. And we look at the rules and we say, to our, and we say back to uh, the pastor or this book or to God, we say, there is no possible way that I can do this. I don't have it in me. I cannot be the, this is like perfection, all these rules, all these things that I'm not supposed to do, all these things that go against my natural inclination sometimes, uh, all the things that I think are fun to do, you're telling me I can't do anymore. And so I'm not, I can't do this. We come back to the book, we come back to God, we say, I can't do it. And the message we often hear back from the person on the stage or from wherever it is, is, well, you should try harder. And then we come back and we're like, well, listen, it, I'm telling you, it doesn't matter how hard I try. I'm outmatched here. I can't do it. And so eventually, what many of us do is we just give up. We say, this is irrelevant. This has nothing to say to me. And the reason we push it away and give up is because none of, we know inside of ourselves this life that we're being called to live, this, this list that Paul gives in verses 1 through 10 that you could go back and read, this self-controlled, submissive life, we can't do it on our own. We don't have it inside ourselves. So now after Paul has given this list, now he moves into these next few verses and he tells us how it is that we are able to live this life, how it is that we are able to live out what God is asking us to do and calling us to do. And the thing that we have to realize is that it's something that exists outside of us, not something that exists inside of us on our own. Paul says there's something that exists outside of you that is the motivating factor, the motivating force that allows you to live the life that God wants you to live. And very specifically in these verses, Paul says there's two things. One of them has already happened, and one of them is going to happen. One of them has already occurred, and one of them is going to occur. One of them has already appeared. One of them has yet to appear. And Paul says, if you think about those two things, not your own ability, not your own willpower, but these two things, then you'll have the ability to do what God is asking you to do today. So what are those two things? That's what I want us to talk about over the next couple of minutes. What are the two things that Paul says? Give us the ability to live out the life God wants us to live. Well, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, Paul starts this part of the conversation. And in verse 11 and 12, he gives us the first one. This is the thing that's already happened. For the grace of God has appeared, Paul says, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. For the grace of God has appeared, Paul says to Titus. Titus, you want to live out this life? You want to be the person that God calls you to be? You want to be able to live the self-controlled, submissive life that we've been talking about? Don't try to do it under your own strength and under your own power. Think about this. The grace of God has appeared. That's what has happened. Now, why would Paul tell Titus to think about that first? Why is that such a motivating factor? Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is receiving something that you don't deserve. Grace is getting something that you didn't earn. If you were to go out to eat after church today and someone you didn't know across the restaurant just picked up your check just because, that would be grace. And so when Paul talks to Titus about grace appearing for the Christian, he's talking specifically about the fact that Jesus Christ has come to this earth and died on the cross for our sins and been resurrected. The grace of God has appeared, he says to Titus. And when we recognize what that means for us, Paul says it will have the effect of motivating us to live out the life that God is calling us to live. When I begin to understand that I was lost in my sin, when I begin to understand that the relationship between me to God was completely broken because of who I am and the wrong things that I've done, when I begin to realize that all of us, apart from this relationship with Jesus Christ and a restored relationship with God, are just stuck in a pit that there is no way out of, when I begin to see the world for what it is, when I see that we become very good at distracting ourselves from the, from the reality that all of us are in, we can stream Netflix all hours of the day so that we never have to stop and think about the reality of our relationship with God and where we are in that and who we really are in terms of who God asks us to be. Paul is saying, when, Titus, when you understand that and you remember that the grace of God has appeared and because the grace of God appeared, Jesus lived the life that none of us could live, lived the perfect life, died on the cross for your sins, made the ultimate sacrifice, defeated death by rising from the, the grave so that when you put your trust and your faith in him, you are guaranteed life eternal. You are restored in your relationship with God. You move from death to life. Paul says to Titus, when you grasp that situation, then the fact that grace has appeared has this effect of pushing us to live the life that God calls us to live. This is the first thing that, that, that Paul says to Titus. Titus, you want to live out this life? Tell the people to live it out, not by their own strength, not by their own power, but be, to be pushed in their action by the appearance of the grace of God. Let that push them in the right direction. And when we remember and we realize what God has done on our behalf, what God has done for us, we have no choice but to honor him. One of the guys that I read this week, uh, one of the commentators that wrote on this chapter is a man by the name of Brian Chappell. And he said, you know, a lot of us think that grace appearing means we just get to look at our lives and say, everything's okay. Grace is here. Everything's okay. But he said that's not the effect at all. 
The grace of God appearing and offering us new life in Christ doesn't let us look at our life and say, that's okay. We have such gratitude for what God has done on our behalf that we desire to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to him. So the first thing Paul says to Titus is you got to understand the effect of the push of grace on your life. But there's a second motivating factor that Paul talks about. And he talks about it in the next couple of verses. And this is what he says to Titus there. I'm going to start back in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Paul says, listen, Titus, something happened, something happened in the past that push you, pushes you into living the life God wants you to live, and that is grace has appeared through Jesus Christ. But there's something that's going to happen into the future, in the future, that also is a motivating factor for you, and that is Jesus Christ is coming again. Where this was the appearance of grace, Paul says, this one is the appearance of glory. And Paul says, listen, Titus, where grace pushes you into the life from behind that God has called you to lead, to, to lead, glory on the other side pulls us along as believers and followers of Jesus Christ into the life that God wants us to live. And so you have on each side of us these two motivating factors. The fact that Jesus Christ has come, died on the cross for our sin, and that pushes us forward. And the fact that he will come again, and if he doesn't come in this life, we will still see him again face to face. And the reality of that moment pulls us along. And when we have those two things in line, Paul says, then we will be able to live out the life that God has called us to live. A future event can have a dramatic impact on our present actions, can't it? If you register for the Boston Marathon next April, you better let that start changing your present actions today if you're going to be ready to run the race on Patriots Day next year. If you know that you have to take an important exam for work or some sort of certification or for class or for school, you would be wise to let the reality of that future event impact your present day so that you're studying and preparing and getting ready. And in the same way, Paul's saying, Titus, Jesus Christ is coming back. You're going to meet him face to face. You would be wise to allow that reality to impact the way that you are living today. The reality that Jesus Christ is coming back is one of those things that either will fill you with great hope, in fact, Paul calls it our blessed hope, or it could fill you with great dread. It's like when your parents, when your parents leave you home alone and give you a specific instruction, something like don't have anyone over. Your response to that instruction will either fill you and their parents' impending return with a hopeful feeling or with a dreadful feeling. If you listen and you do everything your parents ask you to do, then they come home and it's great. They're happy with you, uh, you're happy they're home, and, and everything's fine. But if you don't listen, that impending return is a very negative thing. You're wondering if you can get everything cleaned up fast enough uh, so that they won't notice and you'll be able to slide by. And 
for those of us who believe that Christ is coming back, Paul's saying, let it fill you with hope so that your present day reality is impacted in a way that this is a beautiful thing that is coming. That the grace of God that you have received and the glory that is going to appear would work together on either side of you, pushing and pulling you into the life that God calls you to lead, and you would look forward to the day that you meet Christ face to face. The way that Paul says this all works is that we're being trained, that the grace of God and the appearance of his glory is training us to renounce ungodly things. In fact, this is exactly what he says in verse 12, that it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It's something we can't do on our own. And not only when we recognize the push of grace and the pull of glory, are we trained to live the life that God wants us to lead by something outside of us, not our own efforts, not our own abilities, because we can't do it on our own. But when we look to what Paul is telling us to look with, not only are we trained to lead the life that God calls us to live, not only are we able to live that life, but also our life is infused with great meaning and purpose. I was thinking uh, a couple of weeks ago as, uh, as we watched the fireworks on the 4th of July, all the energy and effort that goes into one firework Think about all the billions of dollars that are spent on the Independence Days around the world, different festivities, religious holidays, uh, Disney, everywhere where there's fireworks all the time, uh, uh, New Year's Eve. All this money and energy and effort is spent on something that just gives a couple of seconds of joy. It goes up for a couple of seconds, it explodes, and it's gone. The design team that, that built that thing, all the money that went into the research and development, all the money that went into the production, all the money that goes from probably shipping that over an ocean so that it can be, uh, so they can be sent off on the 4th of July, all the energy that goes into the person who computerizes the whole show, all of it, just so that we get a couple of seconds of enjoyment, and then it's gone. Without the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives, without the pull of glory and seeing him again, our lives are no different than those fireworks. We're here for a little while, and then we're gone. There's no other meaning beyond that. There's a lot of importance there. There's a lot of anticipation for life, a lot of, a lot of great things around it. But in the reality of the universe and, and, and timeline and everything, our lives, we're just like the fireworks. We go up, we're here for a while, and then we're gone. But with the push of grace and the pull of glory, our lives have meaning far beyond this earth. Because we are living for something bigger than this world, something bigger than ourselves, and that is the reality that there is a God in heaven that loves you and loved you enough to send his son to die on the cross for your sins and longs to be with you in eternity. And the question that each of us have to answer for ourselves is, one, are we going to submit our lives to that reality? Are we going to take our lives and rather than just have a life that's here for a while, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow, and then it just disappears and no one remembers? Are we going to have that kind of life or are we going to be willing to submit our lives 
to the grace of Jesus Christ, to believe that he did come and die on the cross for our sins, to find purpose and meaning and satisfaction beyond ourselves, and then are we going to allow our lives to be determined not by what we want to do in the short number of years we have on this earth, but in the reality that we are going to spend eternity with God in heaven? Those are the questions we have to deal with. Some of you in this room this morning, you're still dealing with the grace question. Are you going to believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is? that he is the savior of the world, that he is your savior, that if you would give your life to him, your life would have great meaning and purpose and fulfillment and your relationship between you and God would be restored. Some of us that have dealt with the grace piece, we have to deal with the glory piece. We believe that that's true, but our lives aren't bearing it out. We've lost the hope that comes with the reality that we'll see Jesus Christ face to face. When we get both of those right, there is indeed great hope that causes us to live the way God wants us to. Yesterday, uh, someone who is, is someone that I really look up to, and I know many pastors and teachers do, a man by the name of Dr. Haddon Robinson, passed away. He was 86 years old. And some of you maybe have heard that name. Uh, but I wouldn't expect that everyone's heard that name. Dr. Robinson influenced decades of preachers. He was at Gordon-Conwell when I was there, uh, and so I had the opportunity, I didn't take a class with him, but I had the opportunity in different settings to hear from him and learn from him and sit under his preaching in chapel. And it's interesting, I had one time, I, I had the chance a couple years ago to meet um, Dr. Tony Evans, who some of you might know, and he's in Dallas, and he has a huge church, huge ministry, and I don't know how many years separate uh, myself and Dr. Evans, but I would, I would guess that, that he's in his 60s, and here we are talking to each other, and the first uh, few minutes of our conversation were about Dr. Haddon Robinson and how much Dr. Robinson had impacted Tony Evans when he was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary. And so here is this man who's impacted all of these preachers. There are thousands of people around the world that have read his book and studied under him. But why does his life have meaning and purpose? Why is there hope today? Not because he was a best-selling author and a phenomenal teacher. Dr. Hollinger, who's the current president of Gordon-Conwell, summed it up well yesterday. He said, we received the sad news today of the passing of our esteemed colleague and friend, Dr. Haddon Robinson. And he says this at the end, though we mourn his loss, we find hope in the power of the resurrection. The reality that Jesus Christ has risen and that Jesus Christ is coming back brings hope and meaning into our present day life. Without it, we have very little. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up as we close this morning, and I just want to share one more thought with you. Last year, their movie came out, and it was called The Lion, and I'm not sure if anyone saw that movie. It was up for a couple Oscars, and stars Nicole Kidman and Dev Patel, and the movie tells what is a true story of a young man named Saru, and Saru grew up in a very rural, poor area of India. He used to go out with his brother, 
and they would go to the train yard and they would collect coins or other things that they could find uh, to benefit their family. In 1986, Saru was five years old and he was out in the train yard and his older brother had, had wandered off to go uh, do his thing and he was waiting for his older brother to return. So he sat down in an empty train and fell asleep. And the train started to move. When he woke up, he was hundreds of miles from home. The train finally stopped in Calcutta, India, which is a major city, and Saru got off the train and spent the next few weeks as a five-year-old fighting to survive on the streets of Calcutta. Eventually, he was picked up and put into an orphanage and adopted by a wonderful, loving family uh, in Australia. So he grew up in Australia in a beautiful home with a great family, very close to the water as he describes it. But that reality of what happened to him so long ago, falling asleep in the train, never left him. No matter how long he lived his life in Australia and had a great family, he still remembered waking up in Calcutta and not knowing what to do. And so one day he came across Google Earth and all the satellite images. And he started in, in Calcutta, which it's not Calcutta anymore, but the city was called Calcutta. And he started to look at that city and the spider web of train tracks running in and out of that major city. And he started following them on Google Earth over and over. And it took a long time. And he kept going back and studying the images and looking and looking and looking. And finally, as he was studying one train track, he noticed a water tower that triggered something in his mind. And then a train platform, and then a ravine, and he knew he had found it. So with the blessing of his family in Australia, in 2012, they flew to India. And he met a very surprised uh, and very grateful woman named Fatima, who was his mother. And since 2012, he said he's returned about a dozen times to visit his family in India. Saru had the thing that had happened to him at a child, and he had the future hope of believing he was going to find it again, that he would one day be reunited with his mom, and that impacted the way he lived his life. That's why he was on the Google, that, why he was on the computer, that's why he was on Google Earth searching and doing that work is because he had the picture of what had happened in his past and he knew what was gonna happen in his future. He believed that that was true. And so his life bared it out in the way that he lived. And because of that, he had a reward here on this earth. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your life needs to bear out the fact that something great has happened to you through salvation in Jesus Christ and something amazing is going to happen to you and that you are going to to be reunited with him in heaven. And that reality needs to impact the way that you're living today. And if you're someone in the room this morning who doesn't believe and doesn't follow Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, if you want your life to have purpose and meaning and value that goes far beyond anything this world can offer, if you want to experience the reality of who God is, then it's time to take the step and believe and trust and accept what God has done for you through grace and what he's going to do for you in glory. This is the engine that drives our life, the push and pull of grace and glory. So while you're waiting, let grace 
and glory impact your life for Jesus Christ. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? If you're here this morning and you're in this place and you would say to me, listen, I'm in a place where I've never accepted the grace that's been given on my behalf. I've lived my life my own way, doing my own thing, and that thing you said about not ever being able to have the energy and and the ability within myself to get my life to the place where I want it to be, to be the person that I want to be, I've experienced that. And today, for the first time, you would want to stop trying on your own and accept the grace that God has offered you through Jesus Christ. It's a very simple step that you need to take, and that is just to tell God that's what you want. Tell him you're sorry for the ways that you walked away from him, sorry for your sin, and that you want that grace to impact your life. You want to begin to follow Jesus Christ with the time that you have. And if you would do that this morning, today would mark a new moment a new life for you, a new relationship with God. Some of us in this room this morning, we've experienced the grace, but we are not allowing grace and glory to impact the way that we live. In fact, there may be areas in our lives where we've just given up. Listen, I tried to be a better person with this area. I've tried to be a better person in this area, but I just can't do it on my own. This morning would be a morning that God's spirit would say to you, stop trying on your own and recognize what I've done for you and what I'm going to do for you and live in that tension and let that motivate you to live the life I'm calling you to live. And some of us that have followed Jesus a long time need to come before him this morning and ask for his forgiveness and his help in leading this life. In a moment, I'm gonna pray for us And then we're going to stand and we're going to close with one final song. As we do, some of our leaders are going to be in the very back of the room. If you're here this morning and you would like someone to pray with you over anything, please come back and see us while we sing this song. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for its truth. God, thank you that you have not left us on our own apart from you, but God, you sent your son to die for us. You gave us grace and mercy when we didn't deserve it, that we might have a life in eternity with you. And so God, would that motivate us? Would that reality compel us? Would the push of grace and the pull of glory help us to live out the lives that you've called us to live? And God, thank you for the meaning and purpose and satisfaction that we gain through the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Would we find hope that no matter what we're facing today, we will see you one day in eternity. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close in song this morning? Hey, thanks again for listening to this sermon from Mount Hope's Belmont campus. If you live near Belmont, Massachusetts, we'd love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10 a.m. and have programs for children from birth through grade five during the service. You can find out a whole lot more about us on our website, which is mounthope.org. God bless you, and we hope to talk to you again soon.